It is time for children's church, and so if you're in pre-K through fifth grade, go have a good time, and we will see you in a little bit. And for all of you singers sticking around in here, would you open your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 15. We have just a handful of Sundays left in the book of Romans before we wrap it up. Uh, and today we're in chapter 15, verses 1 to 13. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, I would love for you to open up that few Bible in front of you. And you'll find Romans 15 on page 1008 in your pew Bible. Standards of beauty differ from culture to culture, nation to nation. And in the U.S., we have a pretty uniform and broadly accepted standard of beauty. Uh, we prize large noses, freckles, and receding hairlines. This is the pinnacle of beauty. I'm just the messenger. I'm just telling, that's what our country has agreed upon. But it's different in other cultures. Not all cultures have the same taste as we do for beauty. Some cultures emphasize skin tone, others emphasize hair length, others emphasize neck length, others emphasize lip size. Uh, there's many different ways a person can be considered beautiful around the world. But what makes a church beautiful? And I don't mean in terms of architecture, I mean the people. What makes a church beautiful? If you're a member of South Shore Baptist Church, what is it that makes our church beautiful? Now, while standards of beauty for people are subjective from culture to culture, the standard of beauty for the church is objective. It's the same from culture to culture, country to country, across the span of time. The beautiful church will always look like Christ, especially in our relationships to each other. Now, in our study of Romans, you go back to chapter 14, verse 1, Paul starts there describing how God's people are to love each other. He's, he's hit this topic at multiple different places in his letter so far, but really chapter 14, he drills down, and that's where we spent our time last Sunday. All of chapter 14 is about our relationships with each other. That theme continues in chapter 15 to the middle of the chapter. And if you've been with us in this study of Romans, you remember he spent the first 11 chapters of his letter just explaining the theology of the gospel, and now he's turned his attention to the application of the gospel and the impact of the gospel on our relationships with each other. The impact is massive. You see, Paul isn't just content to explain, here's how the gospel gets us to heaven, but rather he wants us to understand the ethics and implications of the gospel on our relationships with fellow believers. Now, look. Not all of us may want to add to our friend group. N not everyone may want new relationships or better relationships with other believers. We may want to slip in and out of church unnoticed. Like, I get that. But you have to recognize where you are. This is not a movie theater. It is a church, and the church is relational by its very definition. And some of us may not want relationships with other believers because we've tried that and we've been hurt. Look, the church is sadly notorious for relational messiness. And I think one common thread in all of those stories of hurt is that the church failed to look like Christ. The church 
failed the instruction of Romans 15, 1 to 13. And so when the church fails to look like Christ, the church is ugly and the damage is deep. But when Christians embrace the commands of this passage we're setting this morning, the results are joy and peace and hope. All this comes from being followers of Jesus who look like Jesus in our relationships with each other. And so my purpose in preaching this passage today is for us, South Shore Baptist Church, to commit to be a beautiful church, a church that looks like Jesus. Paul doesn't use the word beautiful this morning. That's my word for explaining what Paul tells us to do here in Romans chapter 15. Paul gives us two characteristics, just two, of a beautiful church. So follow along with me as I read Romans chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Paul says this. He says, Now we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the weaknesses of those without strength and not to please ourselves. Each one of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself. On the contrary, as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For whatever was written in the past was written for our instruction, so that we may have hope through endurance and through the encouragement from the Scriptures. Now may the God who gives endurance and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with one mind and one voice. Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted you to the glory of God. For I say that Christ became a servant of the circumcised on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises to the fathers, and so that Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy as it is written. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles, and I will sing praise to your name. Again, it says, rejoice you Gentiles with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, let all the peoples praise him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will appear, the one who rises to rule the Gentiles, the Gentiles will hope in him. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So in this passage, Paul gives us two characteristics of a beautiful church. Why two characteristics? I split the passage into two different sections. Uh, verses 1 through 6 are the first section. Verses 7 through 13 are the second section. Both of those sections follow a similar pattern. Uh, Paul gives us the instruction or the command. He follows it with an example found in Christ, support from Scripture, and then a prayer that closes each of those two sections. The instruction... Here's Christ's example, support in Scripture, and then a prayer that closes the passage. And so, uh, what are these two characteristics of a beautiful church? The first is this, the beautiful church lifts each other's burdens. This is non-negotiable material, this is not up for dialogue or debate or theological introspection. It is for obedience and glad acceptance, the beautiful church lifts each other's burdens. And so, Paul begins this section, verses 1 through 6, with a command in the form of a statement. Look at what he says in verse 1. He says, Now we who are strong have an obligation to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not to please ourselves. 
So he returns to this language that we heard him use last week in chapter 14, language of the weak and the strong. Who, who are those two groups that he's speaking of here? Well, we don't know precisely. We just have a really good guess. And our best guess is that those who Paul calls weak are followers of Jesus who may come from Jewish backgrounds who still keep kosher laws and perhaps observe the Sabbath in some way. You'll remember from chapter 14, Paul highlighted two areas of conflict in the church at Rome. It, it was conflict around what can be eaten and what days are holy days and what days are not. Those seem like uh, issues related to Jewish practices. So that would be the weak group. It, the, to be weak doesn't mean to be unsaved. Far from it. These are saved people. There's just a difference of conviction on diets and days. So then the strong group are also followers of Jesus who know they have liberty in Christ to eat whatever they want and that they're not bound by Sabbath laws. So which group does Paul belong to? Well, he tells us in verse 1, he belongs to the strong group. He says it explicitly, we who are strong. So when we think of weak Christians, we may think of people who are prone to temptation and sin, but that's not the case here. This weak group of Christians, they are actually incredibly serious about their sanctification. So much so that their consciences bind them in areas where they actually have freedom in Christ. Who are these weak people among us today? Well, here at South Shore Baptist Church, it would be hard for us to find an exact one-to-one -one comparison with the Roman situation. However, we always have among us those who are vulnerable, those who are voiceless, those who are hurting in any number of ways. Christian people have always been consumed with caring for those who are hurting among us. In fact, it is anti-Christ to ignore those who are hurting, to leave fellow believers alone in their grief, or to leave each other's needs unmet. Not only are we concerned with the weak among us, those within the family of faith, but we're also concerned with the weak in society as well. Again, God's people have always lived with their hands out to the weak around them. In the book of Deuteronomy, God commanded his recently emancipated people to care for groups of people who are vulnerable. There's this holy trinity of vulnerable people among God's ancient people. They were orphans and widows and the foreigners among them. Over and over, Israel is commanded by God to provide for the needs of these most vulnerable people. In fact, providing for the needs of those who were vulnerable and weak was a sure sign that you were in right covenant with God. So the command of verse 1 is as old as Mount Sinai. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the weaknesses of those who are without strength. We are to lift their burdens. What does that look like? What does it look like to bear the weaknesses of others? Well, Paul doesn't leave us guessing. He gives us two descriptions of burden lifting. First, at the end of verse 1, he says, do not please yourselves. So that means we're going to put the needs of others before our own. We're going to put other people first. The needs of my fellow believers are more important than my wants. Their comfort more important than my comfort. If they aren't okay, I'm not okay 
We bear each other's burdens by putting the other person first. Another way we bear each other's burdens, listed in verse 2, is that we build each other up. Look at what Paul says in verse 2. Each one of us is to please his neighbor for his good to build him up. So we're to put others first and we are to build them up. And Paul used similar building language in chapter 14, verse 19 and 20. He said, let us pursue what promotes peace and what builds up one another. Do not tear down God's work. Are you a people builder or a people destroyer? Are you lifting burdens or are you adding burdens? Do you walk in a room and say, here I am or there you are? Why is it so essential that Christian people be these kinds of people, that we be burden lifters? Why is it essential that we put others' needs first and build them up? Well, Paul gives us two reasons in his argument here for why we've got to be this way. First of all, to put others first is precisely what Jesus did when he died for our sins. Look what Paul wrote in verse 3. He said, for even Christ did not please himself or put himself first. He died for you while you were still a sinner. And if that's how we've been loved, then there's no other way for us to practice love among ourselves. We have to treat each other the way Christ has treated us. And a second reason for us to put others first is because that's what the Bible has always taught God's people. Paul quotes Psalm 69 verse 9 in verse 3 to support his argument. And it says this, he says, verse 3, on the contrary, as it's written, the insults of those you insult, or excuse me, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. It's a bit of a strange line to quote. And why does he use it? it is he using this verse as if this is Jesus speaking it? Like he's referenced Jesus, who has loved us, put us first, and not himself first. And then he quotes Psalm 69, verse 9. Is this supposed to be coming from the lips of Jesus? Well, it's not very likely. The, the context and, and the content of that line doesn't seem to align with anything Jesus said. But rather, it seems that what Paul is telling us is that the other's first mindset of Jesus followed the pattern laid down in Scripture. Both Christ and the psalmist acted unselfishly in their willingness to identify themselves with the cause of God and to absorb the abuse of God's opponents. So this unselfish willingness to suffer in defense of someone else should characterize the relationships between the weak and the strong in Rome and between the members of South Shore Baptist Church. The way Christ has loved us and the pattern laid down in Scripture going back to Psalm 69 verse 9 is the way you and I are to love and care for each other. So Christ and the Scriptures work in tandem, exhibiting the same pattern of life for God's people and urging us to follow it. So Paul's given us the command, the instruction, right, to, to bear one another's burdens. He's given us the example in Christ's life, support from Scripture, and then in verses 5 and 6, he prays for us. Look at what he says, starting in verse 5. He says, now may the God who gives endurance and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another according to Christ Jesus so that you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with one mind and one voice. 
His prayer is that God would give the church harmony with each other. These two verses are our classic Paul. Paul will pile phrase on top of phrase on top of phrase, and it's kind of hard sometimes to sort through all of that. But if you run it through a filter, what you end up with is a prayer for harmony in the church, that we would be one body with one mind and one voice glorifying God. It's not just any kind of harmony. Paul says it's a harmony according to Christ Jesus. That means it's a harmony that reflects Christ, looks like Christ. It's a lay your life down for your brothers and sisters type of harmony. Groups can have a harmony around any number of issues or values. People who cheer for the same sports team have a certain type of harmony. People who love a particular breed of dog or cat, they have a certain type of harmony. But that's not what Paul is praying for, not just some cheap, low-bar expression of unity. Paul's praying rather that we would be a community of the crucified who bear each other's burdens by putting each other first and building each other up. And that's a harmony that the world does not know and cannot manufacture because it is a harmony like Jesus and from Jesus exclusively. Have you thought about the sort of harmony that existed among the 12 disciples? Especially in light of how different they were and the different lives that they come from. Jesus surrounded himself with people from vastly different walks of life. Within the disciples, for sure, there are commonalities, there are similarities among them. But just reflected in that one group, you have one who's a tax collector and one who is a zealot. And those groups hated each other. They didn't work together for the common good. They detested and despised each other. And yet here are these two men who are followers of Jesus, enemies of each other, but in front of Christ they recognize we are desperate sinners and no one had loved them the way Jesus had loved them. No one had accepted them, received them, carried their burdens the way Jesus had. And so around Jesus, these two enemies become brothers. They become one. They experience a harmony that comes only from Christ. And if you look at us, we are very much the same. We are sinners of all kinds with every reason to be enemies of each other. And yet God is working in us a Christ-like harmony in which we bear one another's burdens. Now that mindset of being Christ-like by lifting the burdens of others, that's a mindset that ought to characterize every relationship in our lives. For sure, it ought to be a hallmark of who we are as a church gathered and in relationship with each other, but as we scatter to our homes and our workplaces and our little leagues, these are the kinds of people we are to be, Jesus kind of people in the world around us. And so if you're single and, and you are in pursuit of a significant someone else, listen, you need to be a burden lifter in your dating life and you need to connect yourself with the other person who is also a burden lifter. Being lonely is a horrible reason to bring a burden creator into your life. If you're married, then in your marriage, you want to be a burden lifter. When husband and wife become burden creators, it creates such tension and turmoil in your home. And 
when Paul gives instructions to husbands in Ephesians chapter 5, the language there reflects language here in Romans 15. He tells husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Right? Lift the burdens of one another the way Christ has lifted your burdens. It's the same language, the same idea. A couple who has Christ-like harmony will have a lifelong happy marriage. And if your marriage today is fractured, broken, if it is struggling under the weight of this tension and brokenness, there is hope in Jesus Christ. He can take that one flesh that's being torn apart and put it back together. He mends what's broken. He does amazing things when a Christian husband and a Christian wife walk in Christ-like humility with each other and choose love. Do not give up on your marriage today. If I'm a Christian teenager, I want to be a burden lifter in the places where I live my life, in my home, with my family, and especially with my friends. Wherever I come into contact with them, at school, I want to be a burden lifter for the people at my school. Every person you walk past in your hallways tomorrow is carrying garbage and dealing with junk. And the mindset of so many in your school or in your friend group is just survive. And what they need is someone who looks like Jesus to come alongside them, to show them compassion and kindness and help. If you're a parent raising children, you want to be a burden lifter in the way you raise your kids. Look, parenting is such a challenge. I don't think we talk about this enough. It is hard work, and it only gets harder the older they get. I was an expert on parenting before my kids were mobile or verbal. <laughs> but once those things changed, man, the, the older I get, the dumber I get as a parent. And, and I mean that in all sincerity. I'm just, Lord, help me. That's the prayer every single day. And so in those moments where stress gets the best of us, or we just don't know what to do, we we want to be parents who are lifting burdens from our kids, not creating burdens for them. So at your job, in your relationships, in your neighbors, in the marketplace, in your marriage, in your singleness, at Little League, wherever it is you are, we want to be burden lifters in the same way Christ carried our burdens to the cross. That's what makes a beautiful church, a church that looks like Jesus. There's a second characteristic of a beautiful church in this passage. The beautiful church accepts one another beautiful church lifts each other's burdens. The beautiful church accepts one another. So Paul gives us the command in verse 7. He says, therefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted you to the glory of God. The word accept might be translated differently in your translation of the Bible. It might be welcome or receive. It carries with it the idea of bringing the outsider in. Imagine a visitor at your front door, you are welcoming them in, receiving them in. You are embracing them into your home and into your life. That's what it means to accept others. So, in uh, what does this look like in a very practical way? Well, Paul does, doesn't leave us guessing. Again, he tells us that acceptance of the other looks like the way Christ has accepted us. And how did Jesus accept you? Well, you came to him a sinner, and he received you, he forgave you, he justified you, he gave you eternal life. 
And that's how we accept each other, with a generosity of grace and compassion and love and forgiveness. We are to accept each other the way Jesus accepted us. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to make sure you understand this point. That, that when the Bible says Jesus accepts us, it does not mean he affirms us in our sin and our brokenness. But rather, it means he saves us from our sin and brokenness, no matter our sin and brokenness. Think about it this way. What is it that makes a good doctor? Does a good doctor celebrate your sickness? No, a, a good doctor receives you in whatever condition you come in, and that good doctor does everything in his or her power to get you healthy. And, and so it is with Jesus. He receives you, sinner that you are, in order to save you from sin's power and penalty. He died in your place for your sin, not to affirm your sin, but to free you from it, to break you out of it. Three days after he died, he rose from the dead, and he promised that everyone who would turn from their sin and trust in him would be saved, would be accepted by him. Now, if, if you could stand in front of the assembly of our culture, the single voice of our culture would be this, you are perfect just as you are. That feels good until we get honest about all the ways we're broken. So when we bring our brokenness back to the world and say, but, but what about this the world says, no, this isn't brokenness, this is perfection. But we know that's not true. If you could stand in front of Jesus with all of your brokenness, Jesus would say this, give that to me. I'll take it. I'll carry it. I'll fix it. I'll give you my life, my joy, my peace, my hope. That's what acceptance looks like. Friend, you have to get this right today. To be accepted by Jesus today by turning to him for your salvation. If you want to talk more about this, I want you to grab me after the service or Pastor Steve or a Christian friend that you're here with. Today is the day for you to be accepted by Christ. Can't put it off another day. So Paul's told us what to do in this passage. He's, he's told us in, this, in, these, or in verse 7 that we are to accept one another. And next he explains why that's so important in verses 8 and 9. He says uh, in verse 8, For I say that Christ became a servant of the circumcised on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises to the fathers so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. So why did Jesus come to us? In verse 8, Paul says Jesus came to serve and save Jewish people. That's not all. In verse 9, he came also to serve and save Gentiles. Paul's helping us understand that Jesus didn't come to exclude, but rather to bring in all those who would believe in him. He didn't come for one people group. He came for all peoples who would come to him by faith. So he came for Jewish people, and he came for non-Jewish people. And then what Paul does is he rattles off four scripture quotations in a row that highlight Christ's 
goals of bringing people in, specifically of bringing Gentiles into the covenant community and making one family out of Jew and Gentile alike. He quotes four different scriptures. The scriptures come from the three major sections of the Hebrew Bible. There's a quote from the law. There's a quote from the prophets. There's two quotes from the writings. Every one of the quotes he gives references the Gentiles, specifically. Your translation might say nations. Every one of these quotes has some reference to praise of God in some way. So Jesus is bringing Gentiles in and Jews in so that together we would praise God with one voice. Let me show you these quotes and their connections on the screen. So the first quotation comes from verse 9, and it's taken from Psalm 18, also found in 2 Samuel 22. And in this passage, Paul cites the royal victory psalm of David to highlight how God's plan included Gentiles through the Davidic line. And Jesus is the ultimate king through the Davidic line. Second quotation in verse 10 is taken from Deuteronomy 32. And there Moses is calling the Gentiles to join Israel in praise to God. The third quote is from, in verse 11. It's taken from Psalm 117. It also calls the nations to praise God. The final quote in verse 12 is taken from Isaiah 11.10, where the Davidic king, the Messiah, is proclaimed as the hope for the nations. So don't miss the point in all of this. Paul is telling the Roman church that by accepting one another, they are fulfilling Christ's very purpose for them, for his church universal. It's a purpose attested to by all of Scripture. The law, the prophets, the writings, the life of Christ all say together with one unified voice, the church that glorifies God is the church where people accept one another in Christ. You know, so often we think of the great benefit of salvation being just the fact that you get to go to heaven when you die. But I don't want you to miss what Paul's saying here. There are benefits to our salvation here and now. And these benefits are like deposits on the glory to come. One of those benefits is the local church. It's our brothers and sisters in the faith. We are people accepted by Christ who are accepting each other like Christ. Jesus gave us each other. He gave us the church. This gathering is not some small thing. It is monumental. It comes with the promise of the ages and the purpose of God in eternity past. That he would make for himself one people out of all people. And that in our gathering, in this broken and decaying world, while we still live in the night before the dawn of the new day breaks, that here and now we would live in God's kingdom come with each other as we will in heaven. And so this is, is not a spectator event. And, and our gathering together is not something that would just be optional or just as good online as it would be in person. But he gives us each other. He gives us brothers and sisters in the faith, spiritual fathers and mothers, spiritual grandparents for our children that we would accept one another from our so many different backgrounds and together be one family through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul closes this section with another prayer, starting in verse 13. 
He says, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace so you believe, or as you believe, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So again, his prayer is this. It is that we accept each other as we are formed into God's family, that God would fill us with peace and joy as we believe. As we believe, meaning joy and peace come only through believing in Jesus. The purpose of our joy and peace in his prayer is so that we'll overflow with hope. Meaning we have ultimate confidence in God to be faithful to his promise to bring peace and righteousness to the world. Accept each other as Christ accepted you. Fulfill the purpose of the cross. Be joyful and peaceful and overflow with hope. That's a beautiful church. Now, you may still have difficulty in understanding the difference between Christian acceptance and worldly tolerance. I found a helpful explanation in a little book called Rediscover Church by Colin Hansen and Jonathan Lehman. The world gives us two options for community. One perspective is what we might call the diversity perspective. And the diversity group celebrates prioritizing differences in ethnicity, nationality, gender, sexual orientation. This perspective trains us to feel right and good when those various identities are included in our community. And so a room full of faces, the same color, feels wrong, even immoral. That's the diversity perspective. The second perspective asks us to celebrate uniformity. So in much of the world, you can't, or at least you're not supposed, to mix different ethnicities. You might live in a remote territory with only one economic class or ethnicity, or in a country that practices a caste system that separates people before they're even born, or, or in a political system that demands obedience to the state in all things, including religion. In those places, diversity is not an option. Uniformity is what's required. And so a room where people disagree with each other, it might feel like something immoral, something sinful or wrong. And so at first, these two perspectives, diversity and uniformity, they might appear to be polar opposites, but they have an underlying similarity. Both groups create community through exclusion. It's what we miss in this discussion all too often. It's more obvious in the uniformity perspective. Right? If, if you expect everyone to be the same, look the same, think the same, well then breaks from the norm are what's not acceptable and you can see where you would, that group would exclude those who aren't like them. But make no mistake, those who say diversity is the pathway to community also practice a different kind of exclusion. You can be a different ethnicity, but you cannot disagree on sexual ethics. You can be proud to be from another country, but you cannot support the wrong political party. You can be celebrated for your gender, but not for insisting on biological differences between the genders. Both perspectives create community through exclusion. You enter those communities only by permission. It will not take much work on our part to find churches that reflect these two worldly perspectives. We can find churches 
that have community around uniformity, even here in our own country. That's not hard to find at all. And we can find churches that have community through a diversity that comes through exclusion. That's not hard to find at all. But we are to be something different than that. We are a fellowship of difference, loved by Jesus, gathered around Jesus. In this community, there's room at the table for every person, regardless of every possible qualifier, because Christ died for sinners. And every sinner who comes to Christ becomes a saint, becomes his child. So whatever our church looks like, we must look like Jesus and love each other deeply as brothers and sisters. What makes a church beautiful? That's the question we started with this morning. What is it that makes a church beautiful? Paul's told us two things. The beautiful church bears each other's burdens and accepts each other. Just two. We're going to bear each other's burdens and we're going to accept each other. Is that enough? It was enough for Jesus to love you this way. And it should be enough for us to love each other this way. Do you lift burdens or create burdens? Do you accept people or push them away? Do you look like Jesus? Look, politics and pandemics have stressed many congregations to the breaking point. And it might seem easier to you to look for a church where everyone thinks the same, votes the same, sins the same way you do, but Christ saved you for something better, to be a part of a fellowship of difference so that we would honor those whose abilities differ from yours, that we would embrace those whose convictions are different from yours, that we would outdo each other in giving honor, that we would promote what pursues peace, that we would respect the zealot or tax collector sitting right next to us. If we want to be a church that grabs the world attention, then we should be a church that looks like the world to come. Let's pray together. Father, this passage gives us so much to praise you for. Our burdens have been lifted by Jesus Christ, our Savior, crucified and risen again. He took the burden of our sin, the punishment that we deserve on himself. He drank that cup in full. And in the place of this punishment, we have been granted his eternal life, forgiveness, holiness, justified before you forever. And we praise you. He lifted our burdens and he's accepted us. He didn't accept us based on our merit, our work. But he just loved us, sinners that we were. He loved us. We praise you for this. Help us to be like him. Holy Father, help us to be like our Savior. In our church, help us to lift each other's burdens and to accept one another. When the temptation to divide or fight or argue or go to war with each other rises, Lord, may we resist that with the love of Christ. May we anchor ourselves in his grace and mercy as we relate to each other. And I pray that this mindset would be reflected in our homes and in our work and in our leisure and in every sphere of our existence 
so that we would be like Jesus to those around us. Father, in all these things, may the world around us see you. May they know we are your disciples by our love for one another. May they be drawn to the gospel and eternal life because of this. Father, we love you. We're grateful to be your people. It's in Jesus' name we pray.